do you like how I did that? I did the three. <laughs> I was counting down, but like. I mean, I was a little TV's. worried. I was like, what happened to two? But then by one not being there, I was like, oh, I get it. It's a radio thing. I was doing thing. it. Exactly. But, it, but we can't see each other. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, welcome to Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, the internet's favorite podcast about why uh, Sophie and I are wrong. <laughs> um, my name is Amos, and uh, I'm a co-host. Yeah, and I'm Sophie, and I'm not actually a rabbit. She's not a rabbit, and she's also not Sophie. Um, so it's a little. She's a little bit of a mystery, and and we we won't really get into that at this point. Um, <laughs> So this is our first episode, and uh, the the way the format is going to work is uh, each of us is deeply, deeply mistaken about a great many things, and we're going to tell each other about it. Each of us will have some thoughts about a subject and uh, that we don't know very much about, and the other one will then go into a little bit of detail and tell us why we're wrong. That's pretty um, much how it's going to go. That's how it's going to go. So, um, Sophie, why don't you start us off, and then... Uh, I'll tell you how and why you're wrong in excruciating detail. I'd be happy to. I'm ready to be schooled. So this uh, first conversation we're going to have kind of comes out of uh, another conversation that we had what's now quite a lot of months ago. Um, a really long time ago. A really this, long time this ago. This took a, an, an embarrassing long amount of time to get It, it sure together. did, but that's all right. So I'm going to kind of bring us back to that conversation and remind you and our listeners who are, well, it's not a reminder for them, that once in a conversation about the allure of knowledge systems, you joked, Amos, that you were afraid you might become an anti-vaxxer because of your tendency. Ah, because of your tendency to get drawn into, uh, drawn in by potentially dubious health science research. Mm -hmm. Now, personally, I don't think that your willingness to spend a year or more eating stegosaurus burgers and drinking <laughs> half and half suggests mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you're really in much danger of subscribing to conspiracy theories that have the potential to cause harm to other people. But more than that, you're I'm, deeply naive. I'm less convinced. <laughs> I'm less convinced of the seductiveness of epistemology. It seems to Ooh. me that most people are more than happy to basically cherry pick the ideas and heuristics that they like the most. And incoherence and contradiction don't seem to be a deterrent to most folks. Uh, in constructing a worldview. In fact, it seems to me that uh, <laughs> incoherence may be a subversively appealing aspect of uh, constructing a worldview. So I can't tell right now whether I think that's bad or good, uh, but it doesn't seem quite as alluring as we might think at first glance. So I'm not too worried about you going off the deep end, but tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I, I, I will, that, but first... <laughs> Before I do that, I, I, I want to. I just want to go back to something you said about the uh, whether or not stegosaurus they, burgers. N- no, but the 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 allure of incoherence. Mm-hmm. I was wondering just if you could expand on that a little bit. Oh well, it seems to me that uh, things that don't really make a lot of sense, but that if you put them side by side and yell about them, they seem somehow to form something that says something about the world. Uh, seem pretty popular at the moment, and hmm. uh, a variety of other points in history. Hmm. So it's not the allure of having of one person having an incoherent worldview. It would be the allure of having a worldview that's out of step with other people. Uh, no, more that it seems to me that uh, instead of having some kind of seamless system with uh, moving parts. I'm imagining sort of like one of those Rube Goldberg machines where all the pieces fit together and they all work together to do something. It seems like uh, many people are really interested in just kind of pasting together a collage of ideas and explanations that they like and sure. uh, stitching them together or gluing them together in a way that you know sort of hangs together a little bit but doesn't, uh, a close, sort of in close inspection, doesn't really function very yeah, yeah, yeah. Coherently. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, of Willard Van Orman Keene's sort Did of... Did you just make up that name? No. <laughs> no, Keene. Q-U-Y-N-E. Super, super important uh, mid-century American philosopher. Oh, American. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's one of the two that I know anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but he had this sort of model of, of knowledge as 
you could think of it actually sort of like a dream catcher, if that mm. makes sense, where the ring on the outside is sort of facts about the world, mm-hmm. things that are directly experienced more or less. Mm-hmm. And and the the threads uh, running through and connecting are are sort of theories or hypotheses or beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of the closer they are to the outside edge, the more they're bound and constrained by the actual. Oh, by reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the closer to the middle, the weirder things can get. (laughs) And is this one person's sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Internal way of system of beliefs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so uh, really you can, you you, you know, he he would say that you, uh, when it comes to theories, there's really no such thing as conflicting theories it's just a question of like how big of a tangled mess of um, strings do you want in the middle? How can there be no such thing as conflicting theories? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's been a long time, but but or or I mean maybe maybe we just want to say like they're they're less common or less less common or, or less significant than you think. Uh, you know, as long as you're willing to adopt lots of other strange beliefs. Okay, sure. To sort of buttress the weird stuff you've got in your yeah, mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a question of how many yeah, how many other strange beliefs do you want to kind of cram in there to explain away apparent contradictions? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend the other day who um is a clinician and and also a, a professor of psychology and uh she was saying that she thinks that, you know, every person no matter how uh, fractured they might seem ultimately is co- is a coherent personality and has sort of a coherent um, self in the world. And oh, save uh, it for episode two. I thought that was really interesting, and I'm sure she's right because I don't have the kind of experience and knowledge that she has. But I was I was very willing to entertain the possibility that some people really don't kind of hang together in any uh, you know have sort of these big holes in their thinking or their being that, that don't ever really close up. So, um, and, and maybe those, maybe if those folks exist, they can, uh, they can have one of those really tangly dream catchers that kind of keeps it, holds it all together. Yeah. Though I'm not sure though, I'm not sure those are quite the same thing. The, like having contradictory or apparently contradictory beliefs or, or beliefs that are in tension with each other and having an unintegrated, mm-hmm. uh, personality mm-hmm. or self i'm not sure so maybe you should sure tell me why things. you're worried about this uh this allure of for, for yeah but lack of a better word this allure of knowledge system sure so a little a little bit of background uh as as sophie uh referred to in her opening statement there um i i am let's say an an adherent of basically what is commonly referred to as sort of a paleo worldview when it comes to um, diet and nutrition. I know, I'm just imagining you in a sort of uh, Flintstones type, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. outfit with a club or something. It's an, it's an unfortunate, uh, it's an unfortunate name that got tagged on this, this whole thing. Uh, you know, the, I think the, the more sophisticated people these days generally talk about things like evolutionary health or ancestral sure, health. Sure, sure. Still yeah. sounds stupid to me. Uh-huh. In order, <laughs> in order to <laughs> sort of get away from the, the Flintstones jokes. But, <laughs> uh, but, you know, broadly speaking, what that means is that I think that a lot of mainstream nutritional advice uh, and science is really crappy. Um and a lot of a lot of the commonly held beliefs about what's healthy and what isn't healthy are are garbage um and do a lot of harm to people so it occurred to me that formally i was in a position that's that's uh similar to anti-vaxxers in that uh i really do think that you know, mainstream science has led us astray. Uh, I don't think it's a like a big conspiracy, I, but I think you know, I think there are understandable reasons why why uh, nutritional science sort of took a wrong turn. But um, but yet, formally speaking, it's it's a similar position to anti-vaxxers who think that mainstream science is you know wrong about the causes of of uh, autism, and it occurred to me that. 
you know, while I've done a lot of reading about this topic, you know, it's not like I'm out there doing research myself. And I've read a few papers, but mostly I'm reading secondary sources and interpretations from people who I trust. Um, but, you know, it's it's not it's not direct learning by any means. And, and, and my beliefs about what's healthy and what's not healthy are, are dependent on, on trusting these intermediaries. Um, and I'm not, so I guess, I guess that's what it comes down to this idea of who, who are your trusted intermediaries? And did I end up trusting trustworthy intermediaries and the, and the anti-vaxxers ended up trusting non-trustworthy intermediaries? Like- well, I think it's a great question. I mean, we live in a really complicated world, um, and I don't think that that's new. I think that's been true for a really long time. You think the world was com- complicated back in the day, too? Uh, so you've now used one of my least favorite f- f- historical <laughs> phrases, uh, the others being... Complicated, ba- the world is complicated? No, no, uh, back in the day. Wow. Uh, also back then, and mm-hmm. in olden times. I love in olden times. <laughs> I really have to sometimes stop myself from pouncing on a student when they so say, you know, just, back then. Just just for people who haven't picked up on this yet, Sophie is a professional historian, so she has opinions about old things. I, I do. I love I love to think about old things, um, and I love to be specific about them. As I often tell my students, historians love dates. Uh, and back then is he's amazingly unspecific. But but my point is that we live in a really complicated world and we do have to trust intermediaries. Um, and we've talked about this before and maybe it'll come up as a topic in another episode. But, I hope it does. Um, we have been uh, both you know, kind of struck by the fact that not only do we not do our own science, uh, but when there is a science versus, you know, sort of scientifically informed worldview versus uh, spiritually informed or theologically informed uh, worldview, not that these two things have to be in, you know, there's no, there's no reason that they have to be at odds, but in our society and also politically, they, they tend to be matched against each other. Um, it's not as if uh, the folks on the kind of theological side of the argument are prophets or theologians or uh, or even potentially um, religious leaders, right? Both sides are in most conversations that you get into, both sides are trusting intermediaries, um, whether scientists on one side or scriptural authority on the other side. Um, it's not as if either side has a kind of direct um, research or experiential. Uh, perspective. And Mm -hmm. so we all do this all the time. And I guess what you're asking is, so there's two different questions going on here. One is you're asking, why do we trust certain knowledge systems? And are they, uh, and once, and once you sort of step away from the mainstream, whatever you define that as, uh, you get into the question of legitimacy, uh, because, because, because outside the mainstream, there's less sort of, um, uh, vetting that goes on. So that's one question. I was taking it from the other side, which is sort of, I'm not so sure that they're, that, 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 that people adhere to these systems at all. Um, and I think that's even true with nutritional science, right? Because, um, you're saying uh, mainstream nutritional science isn't very good, but from what I've read, you know, a lot of nutritional science isn't very good uh, because oh, sure. it's really hard to isolate uh, what people are eating from everything else that they're doing in their own lives. And not to get into the weeds, but there's there's a whole <laughs> argument against trying to isolate it in the first sure, place. Sure, sure. So, uh, so once you are taking it with a grain of salt, I think you know maybe you're safe. Maybe that's kind of the prophylactic. Uh. Like you know that this is not this is not ever going to be a, a a total system that explains everything without any gaps. Um, it's never going to be hermetically sealed and all perfect. Sure. Right? You're always going to have. I mean, anything any research is always unfinished. Sure. So nothing is ever truly definitive. Um, so you know you sort of have this sense that okay, well this is evolving and so I think that that may be satisfying from a theoretical point of view, but not really from a practical one where vis-a-vis food i have to i have to eat something you know yeah. what i mean and i and i could either yeah. i could either be doing harm to myself or 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 benefiting myself and and with vaccines where i either need to vaccine myself vaccinate myself and my children or not and, sure you know and and that's a that's a real decision that people have to make but it does um, seem that they're different in a way in an important way because food is an this isn't always true, but in your mm-hmm. case, it seems to me that food is an individual decision, and vaccines mm-hmm. are population 
level decisions, right? Yeah, I mean, no, they're individual decisions decision. that are about population. I mean, it's a population strategy. It's not an individual strategy. Yep. Um, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I, last night I ate ramen and went to bed. I mean, from a package for real. So wow. I don't know that I, I mean, it's been a hard week. Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's be really honest. The last few weeks have been just, just the suck. Um, that so is true. I, you know, <laughs> we have to make f- decisions about food. We have many chances sure. every day to make bad choices about food. And, uh, and I'll be, I, I did. That's, I mean, Usually sure. Usually I put some vegetables in there. I seen some like protein of some kind. It was just nothing. It was just a bowl. What flavor of, was it? Well, I will say that I, I do one good thing, which is that I, I don't use the, the flavor packet that comes with the So I would buy the nicer ramen noodles, except for that I, I, they don't have them at my grocery store. So I just get the crappy ramen noodles and I put my own nicer broth in it. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, my, uh, <laughs> that's my healthy huh. version of the ramen. Huh. Okay. Huh. We may need to do an episode on this. <laughs> on so- my eating habits? Uh-huh. Sophie's healthy version of ramen. <laughs> well, okay. Sometimes I put like zucchini and, uh, and, and, and tofu and scallions and greens and stuff in there. Yeah. I make like a hot pot. It's great. Yeah, okay. But yesterday, you know, I didn't. It was too much. It was just too much. I think as you get older, one of the, one of the things that um, changes is the meaning of Friday night. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I I've really learned that about myself that uh, Friday night is not fun time. It's like put on my jammies and watch TV for an I, hour and fall asleep time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was never Friday night was never my big. I'm always too tired on Friday, no matter yeah. what. Even when I was like, I don't know, a youngin. Anyway, back to your problems. I'm just not. I'm just not convinced that you're going to go off the deep end. You know, I, I I probably don't think I will, but here's the thing, or or like I'm not going to go on into like full on anti-vaxxing because I mean, I mean I actually think the the research on this is seems pretty solid, um, but um, what was I going to say? Oh, to some extent, anyway, I feel like it's just because of social pressure. Yeah, maybe except for that the social, the the people that you know in your social world who apply that pressure uh, have really good reason to do, do so. Well, yeah, I mean the people in my world do. They work with autistic kids, right? And have and and first of all, I mean, if I may soapbox a little bit, Go first of it. all, oh, yeah. uh, you know, are pretty convinced that there is no evidence no connection whatsoever. And the other piece, which I think is even more important, even more important than that, is the idea that how has the specter of autism become so frightening that you're willing to endanger not only yourself and your children, but other people's children to all kinds of uh, potentially fatal illnesses. I mean, there are very competent, very successful, very lovely people who with, have autism walking around every day. Are they so terrible that you would risk your kid's life so that the kid wouldn't end up like them in the, in the completely you know, cockamamie and bonkers world in which those two things are connected, which is not the world we live in, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Even if that were the case, how is that? How do you, I'm doing a little um, weighing scales thing with my hands. How okay. is it that you can say, I would rather my kid get measles uh, than be autistic? I know plenty of people who are on the spectrum who are great. Sure. Why sure. is that so creepy? Uh... You know, I don't. I, I don't think that's that's a question with an easy answer. Because um, people are prejudiced jerks. I think some of it is is just with an prejudice. incoherent worldview. <laughs> Maybe, but like you know, I mean, there are plenty of, geez, there are plenty of autistic people who you know are completely nonverbal and need to live in like state funded homes their entire lives. And I think most people, that's not something they would like. You know what I mean? Like when you sure. Uh, Sure. You know, that's it, that's a tough decision. But you now, can I think also you can also get brain damage from having a really high fever because you got sure. ill with and, something that you could have prevented. And as you point out, that's not actually the choice in front is, of anyone. It is. It is not the choice in front of any, anyone. Um, and uh, certainly, I think that this is where these two things divide from one another. Your your choice to 
uh, drink half and half, <laughs> uh, per perhaps uh, could be harmful to people in your life because if it turns out that you know the ancestral diet is 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 not right, um, we could all be sad if you got sick. But that's not sure. the same as choosing not to vaccinate your kid, and then your kid carries a virus or carries a, an illness that somebody else's kid who can't be vaccinated for other reasons, um, being too young or having mm -hmm. a, a you know another condition. Now that kid gets sick from your kid, right? This is a popular population level solution. If we don't like it, then we need a different population level solution. Just people dropping out is not the solution. And I don't think that that's the same as making choices about what you eat. No, that totally makes sense. Like there's, there's not a, a herd immunity issue with, um, Stegosaurus. With yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's I a mean, problem for the Stegosaurus cause they're endangered. Very, very <laughs> endangered. <laughs> Yeah, sci scientists say their days may be numbered. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. Um, Does that mean I'm right? Uh, you're right. I, let's say you're right that I will not become a full-on anti-vaxxer. Ding ding! I haven't I feel gotten like a I flu should... shot in a few years. That I. That's okay. Okay. The f I mean. The flu vaccine is bullshit anyway. <laughs> No, now I'm worried. Now you're on your way. Look, no, look, I, here's I, the thing. It, it doesn't work. Uh, the yeah, flu doesn't is work. very changeable. The flu is very changeable, the and we know that. It's very changeable. Uh, the flu vaccine does make some people sick. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, even, even when they get the right strain, the vaccine doesn't necessarily prevent infection. But I think a lot so. of people who advocate for getting the flu shot would also say that. So they in that would, case, out I'm of not the sure corner of their mouths because they're afraid of getting tarred as an anti-vaxxer. Sure. But if we're talking about mainstream acceptability, I think like there's, this is what I'm talking about, sort of the research and grain of salt thing. Like if we have a consensus that this may not be a hundred percent perfect, but that it's good for some people in some circumstances and we can make uh, reasonable decisions about it, then that means we're all still participating in a knowledge system where we have some, we have like nobody has sort of broken off and split off into a totally different way of conceiving of the flu shot, right? No one's, it's, it, 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 if, if we say, yeah, okay, it's, it's sort of imperfect, but some people in certain situations really ought to get it and other people can make different choices and for some people it's a really bad idea. No one is saying, if you get the flu shot, you will be um, uh, transported to a space station on Mars because it's actually a that transporting doesn't, that fluid. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Right, I mean, uh, that was not a very good example of like a, a, an alternative. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I see what you're saying. Like, no, like the the argument about a flu vaccine is about sort of whether or not it's effective and worth some sort of uh, pretty reasonable cost benefit analysis, not whether or not it's gonna like have sort of dire consequences. Dire consequences that are really part of a totally different worldview, right? Yeah, yeah. sure, sure. That makes sense. I mean, I think you're fine. I think you're going to be fine. I think that you, if you're in, and you are embedded in a community because in some ways systems of knowledge are really about systems of people and yeah. social systems. And you're embedded in a community totally. where like, if you start to really go off the deep end, there's like a lot of people who are going to be like, whoa, really though? Unless yeah. you're just in a total echo chamber, but I don't think you are. I mean, you, we just started a podcast where it's my job to tell you why you're wrong. So I think we're safe. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll have to make sure to bring all of my, uh, all of my weirdest ideas to you. So you can, <laughs> so so I you can, can completely disabuse you of uh -huh. the notion. Uh -huh. Great. Great. I'd be happy. Um, I would be happy to set myself up. And I don't want to do that for everyone, though, because that just seems exhausting. To tell everyone why they're wrong? Yeah. Yeah, no. And you, you don't have time to do that many shows anyway. Mm-mm. Mm -mm. No, it's not hey, like an advice column. Right. Sophie, that, that seems like a good place to stop with that topic and to Great. move on to um, your argument for why most historical fiction is a waste of time. Yeah. So uh, let's do that. And we'll start with my argument for why you think most historical fiction is a waste <laughs> of time. Great. Um, so historical fiction, we're talking about, you know, books and literature and stuff that takes place at any point in the past. Is that right? I think that's right. Okay. So they're useless. <laughs> right? I think. I, I'm, 
honestly, I'm I'm not sure if they're useless. But if I were to think they were useless, I would think it was uh, they were useless because uh, they're not historically accurate. They make changes to historical fact for the sake of story, uh, which is great. I mean, you need to in order to have a good story, but it gives people the false belief that they know something when in fact they don't. So they make changes, mm. right? Like people, mm. you know, you see this where people think they know something about some historical event because they read a book about it, but the book was fictional and changed, you know, important, uh, relevant facts. Further, I would say that that the changes um, are systematically biased. So we're not just saying, uh, I'm not saying that, the, that there's like some political motivation, but uh, there's pressure to sort of uh blandify the strangest weirdest parts of the past (laughs) in order to make uh people and places seem relatable to contemporary readers so the things that people actually could learn from uh reading historical fiction are the things that are excluded interesting so i just a little bit of a tangent here yeah i just want to say i'm uh i want to reserve a special moment to hate on biopics because <laughs> they are the worst uh, <laughs> in addition to the problems that i just talked about they also almost always uh have a story structure that's just and then and then uh instead of and so so there's a, mm. a string of unconnected Pithy. moments uh that happen to come in a particular order rather than a series of events where each one is the necessary result of what came before. Which and is in some way sort of the opposite problem of the problem that you just described in historical fiction. And so totally. in a way, oh, that's you, now, you have, now you have two opposing problems, both of which are bad. Neither with, you know, if you're going to escape one, you're going to end up with the other. This is not actually why I think it's a waste of time, but I really i am enjoying hearing this anyway. But I'm right, though, right? That, that is a reason <laughs> that it's a waste of time? Uh, that could be a reason that it's a waste of... It could be a reason... You know, I think it's a reason that the, the genre is flawed, but it's not my reason that it's sort of a waste of your time. Well, tell me why I'm wrong. I think the reason that it's a waste of your time is that you'd be much better off doing one of two things. Mm. A, read a really good collection of letters or somebody's journal... Um, like Mary uh, Chestnut, you could. Read Mary <laughs> Chestnut. Uh, well, uh, okay, uh, we'll put her to the side uh, for now. Um, that really gives you some insight into the time, and you don't have to go to an archive to do this. There's lots of really wonderful published letters, letter collections, and journal collections that are edited really nicely, so that readers can get into them and enjoy them. Um, you could also read a piece of fiction. Uh, from the time you're interested in, so that that is contemporary, right? That describes roughly the time that it's in. You're going to get uh, a real, you know, and, and and especially if it's by a really good novelist, you're going to get all kinds of wonderful things um, that already exist, right? We don't need somebody from the present to sort of imagine what it would be like so to you write could just fiction. Read old books instead you of just new read books. Old out. books, right? Um, and the last thing that you could do that wouldn't be a waste of your time, and just a second, I'm going to tell you why not doing this is a waste of your time. But um, mm. one thing that uh, you could also do is read a really good work of history. Um, if you want a kind of contemporary perspective, don't laugh, uh, if you want a contemporary perspective on the past, uh, you, can, uh, you, can, you can ask your historian friends for a good recommendation. Uh, now, historians generally do a pretty bad job of making ourselves accessible to the public, and we have lost out to the journalists and the, like, uh, and the bio writers. Uh, most mm. people who read popular history read those kinds of things, but I think we need Give to do a McCullough. better job. Yeah, well, I, I don't have a problem with him. Um, uh, but apparently, like, Glenn Beck now needs to, like, write about historical figures of all sorts. So, uh, and mostly, I mean, most, uh, mostly how they're k- being killed. Right? Bill O'Reilly does. Oh, it's Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. I, oh, I Glenn, Glenn Beck, is he's liberal now. I don't know if you heard this. I, well, I wondered about that. Okay, yeah. so, so that's a side note. We'll have to deal with that later. But so I think part of the problem with uh, contemporary historical fiction that's being that's you know being written all the time and i will say that i'm going to make some exceptions of of, of of like cases that i think are really actually are very good and successful oh wait so you're saying that not all historical fiction correct. is a waste of time correct <laughs> correct 
But I think a lot is, and part of it is just that it's, um, you know, it's really faddish. It's really trendy. It's like all of a sudden, well, it's not all of a sudden. It's because the 100th anniversary of com- is coming up, has come up, um, of, of the Great War, World War One, is like suddenly very sexy. And so every book, you go into your local bookstore, and there's so many about uh, the Great War. And obviously, huh. always uh, the 1930s and 40s. And the Second World War is always kind of hot. So um, one of the things that's really interesting, I think, about people who write historical fiction uh, or people who read historical fiction that often are going for the material details. And as someone who's interested in material history, I totally get this. And um, we want to know so the texture people, of the past. Yeah, tell people a little bit what you mean by material details. Well, what does the ottoman look like? What does the what's this chest of drawers thing? What is she wearing? Right? That's a big one. We love to know what women wore in the past. And um, huh. when you read uh, when you read a piece of fiction, let's say from I don't know, the 1890s, that's also about that period, roughly. I mean, most fiction is written a little bit uh, from the future, right? If it's about the 1890s, maybe you, somebody wrote it in the ni- 1900s or the early teens, but still, it's, it's That's because writing pretty takes close. a long time. Sure. Um, and people are remembering, you know, things from their uh, recent past. But generally, there's not a lot of descriptions of what people wore. There's not these sort of loving, obsessive descriptions. Right, because that stuff of, was understood. Yeah, right. And in... The genre now, they're so we just like want to eat that stuff up, and I understand it because yeah. it's really interesting. But uh, it's 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 becomes just fetishized, and it's it's it, you know it's it's actually not very interesting in a way. Um, the other thing that I think happens is that contemporary writers one of their jobs is to say something important about the time that they're living in and the issues that they care about. Mm -hmm. And so when they use the past to do that, it does create a distorted picture of the past and often one that's more sanguine than it ought to be. And I'll give you an example of a book that I actually really like, which is Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters. Um, It's a really interesting book. It's really fun to read. But it's clear that the author thought to herself, okay, I want to write about Victorian London. I want to write about... Victorian lesbianism. I want to write about uh, turn, turn of the century BDSM uh, and what's, uh, what's the name of this book again? <laughs> and cross dressing and sex work and socialism and um, and 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 the character kind of goes through all of these different episodes where she experiences all these different things and it's really interesting, but uh, it doesn't hang together because this would be very unusual. And and it also, I think you're right, blandifies or, or kind of uh, rosifies the past. So, for example, at the end of the book, she falls in with this group of socialists who happen to be really open-minded about homosexuality, and they're also, like, not at all anti-Semitic. They're totally mm. okay with um, babies being born out of wedlock. They're just so, like... Very hip. Very hip. And it's lovely, and it's a lovely alternative vision of the past. Um, but it's 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 in some ways it's really opportunistic because um, it suggests that our values now can be read back into the past in a really non difficult way, and I think that's yeah. just not quite right. Sure. Um, so just just to jump in, part isn't part of the problem there also the whole like truth is stranger than fiction thing, mm-hmm. like. Like maybe there really was a group of people like that in London, and that would be an interesting thing to <laughs> sure write about would. from a historical perspective. Absolutely. But when you put it in fiction, it stands out as implausible. Absolutely, and when you're just making it up because it makes your story good or because it's what you're interested in, I think if we take an analytical perspective, then that's that can be great. We can say, okay, so clearly Waters is interested in certain kinds of things um, in her own time. And so she wants to find them in the past. And that's an interesting conversation we could have. But most people who read that are not going to be thinking that way. Um, I think if you read something like um, Kate Atkinson's Life After Life or the companion book to that book, A God in Ruins, which is which are both about World War II, um, it, you know, it's a really different situation. It's very clear that what she's doing is meditating on what the past looks like. Um, from from our vantage point, even though in some ways they're pretty straight up historical fiction, um, you know, novels. In other ways, it's really clear always that there's like this experiment going on. And I and I would say, you know, somebody like Michael Andachi, who writes about the past in these kind of fragmented ways too, um, does a really nice job. So I'm certainly not saying that all works of historical fiction are are bad or that they have no literary merit, but that for people who are really curious about the past, I mean, maybe this is coming back to what you said at the beginning. Um, they're really not 
if you if you have so much time to spend learning about the past, reading a novel from 2016 about uh, 1916 may not be the best way to go about it. So it seems like, and, and this should have been obvious from the question, I think, that whether or not you think historical fiction is a waste of time depends on what you think the purpose of reading historical fiction is. Sure. So yeah. if, if you're doing it because you want to learn about the past, right, as you said, there there are better ways to learn about the past and to get a more accurate, fuller picture of the past than than a historical novel will do for you. If Yeah. If the uh, reason you want to read historical fiction is is for this sort of fetishization of um, material culture, um, along with like a narrative to sort of keep you engaged. Like I don't know, mm-hmm. it seems like there are worse ways to entertain yourself. I don't know. I feel like that's. Uh... You just think no, there are not worse ways to entertain yourself. <laughs> no, there are definitely worse ways to entertain yourself. But I think it's. I think nevertheless. Uh, it, it. I don't know if it's a waste of time, but it feels you're to me to who, be. You're the one who it, brought that it, up. I'm gonna say I stand by. It feels wasteful of something, of of attention or of, uh, you know, of um, curiosity or. So would would you say the same thing of about movies set in the past? Well, now, so I have some. I don't. I, I don't have an opinion on movies just yet, but I do huh. have an alternative view of poetry and theater. And the reason that I do is that I I have a pet theory that novels are really not all of them. Right, novels are really different from each other. There's lots of different kinds of ways of going about novels, but as a genre, it's a sort of it is kind of hermetic. Right, you sort of go in and it's this contained, complete world. And Unless totally. it's explicitly experimental and it's like sort of rupturing the sense of itself as a novel, which, by the way, can be very tiresome. And I'm not suggesting people uh-huh. spend their time only reading that kind of novel. But it's sort of meant to pull you in and make you feel um, that you're in this world. And I think a lot of theater doesn't do that or can't do that. And certainly poetry is... Mm, artificial enough in a lot of ways and people who read it are aware sure. of its artificiality. And that, and that artificiality seems like, I don't know if maybe this is where you're going, but it seems like that's going to sort of break the illusion mm-hmm. of learning about the past. Mm-hmm. Sure. and as, um, as like a factual thing. Right. And I think that that, I feel really differently about that. I think sort of performing the past or enacting the past or sort of imagining moments in the past in a variety of ways. And I would include, you know, history books, monographs and articles on his historical subjects kind of in this category is like a meditation or reconstruction of the past and its strangeness um, and yet its familiarity at the same time are totally not wastes. Um, but I think that the novel it really does lend itself to this immersive experience and that can be uh, self-indulgent, right? Um, the idea that you just sort of want to spend your time. First of all, anybody who wants to spend their time in the world of World War One, I'm a little bit worried about them already. Hmm. Um, you know, you really want to spend your time there? It's, it was a terrible time. <laughs> I actually have yeah. discussions with a group of historians that I know. It was sort of a, a joking discussion as we were all getting ready to go to class, but we were talking about what we would do if we had a time machine and what, what, what place would we go back to and what time would we go back to? And the majority of us were like, no way in hell. I would that right, is, I'm staying right here. I'm staying right here. It is terrible. Fresh uh, stegosaurus, though. Fresh stegosaurus, notwithstanding, uh, my safety would be imperiled. My health would be imperiled. And, uh, it, you know, it, I don't I don't think much of the past no, it totally is, makes is sense. romantic. Yeah, like the people who know about the past know that it was bullshit. Just as much bullshit as our time is right now, At but I kind of like much. the people that I know here. Right, yeah. If I could go back and spend some time with some people then that I... But, you know, I spend all my time with those people anyway because I read all their journals all the time and so their I, diaries and their letters and, you know, yeah. I don't need to see them in person maybe. So does, That's not true. I take that back. <laughs> I would totally do that. But anyway, that's separate. It'd be a visit, though. Yeah. And you'd take precautions. I would. So... This conversation, it's, it's, I know you didn't want to get, I tried to draw you into the, the movie discussion because I had <laughs> a, I had a, a real good zinger that I was going to use. Yeah. Okay. Well, you want to use it anyway, or you, do, do I need to set you up for it? Well, you you were going to say, <laughs> you were going to say that historically, historical movies are also, are also bullshit. And then I was going to say counterpoint, Gladiator won best picture, <laughs> right? Which is a strong <laughs> argument, but uh-huh talking more that just um 
Yeah, what you were saying brought up deep inside me uh, my hatred for uh, Downton Abbey. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I think it was when you started talking about the Great War there. And, yeah. Uh, that just reminded me of, of uh, yeah, just how much I hate Downton Abbey. Um, I'm so curious. I have very, 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 very ambivalent feelings about Downton Abbey. I'd love yeah. to hear about your hatred. So um, let me start off by saying that and I now, actually think... Have mm-hmm. you watched any of Downton Abbey? Sure. No, I've watched several seasons. Okay. I, I, I stopped after the first episode of some season. I don't know, maybe the fourth Okay, I have After, not watched very much of it. I, I watched. Oh, uh, okay. I, well, I don't. I won't say. Not, not, I won't say no, when I, I stopped. Then, well, it was I'll a tell you when I stopped. When did you? When did you stop? Uh, I stopped. Well, so I, I, I was not keeping up with it. So it had already aired, and I knew that bad things were going to happen, and people were going <laughs> to really die. Right. Um, but I stopped, and this was for historical accuracy Ooh. reasons i stopped after so lady, spoilers so if you you spoilers. know spoilers, yeah, spoilers everybody don't la 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 i stopped after edith got left at the altar because i just felt that that oh, was yeah. unbelievably inappropriate uh it just would never ever happen never i mean all ki- it's a soap opera right so all kinds of implausible kooky crazy things happen in the first episode like there's you know lots of bonkers thing happen yeah, yeah but yeah. to me socially that would just have not been permitted. So, and, yeah. And any universe that those people lived in, no way in hell. You get married. You go to the front of the church and you get married. So, I, I've actually seen some interviews with what's his name, Julian Fellows, mm-hmm. I think, and and um, it's super interesting because because he he makes and I can't remember what exactly he was talking about. I don't think it was that but it was some other ridiculous garbage that happened in the show <laughs> where he was like, and this actually happened. You know, there was a manner where blah, blah, blah happened. That's what I based this on. Sure. And I was just like, come on. Give me. Like, that doesn't make it a good story. The fact that something like it happened doesn't mean that it's not garbage within the context of the story that well, you actually bring, have on screen. This brings you, you know, back to... Historical the truth is not a defense. Well, not unless you're writing what... Unless you're writing nonfiction, right? Exactly. If you're trying exactly. to make an analytical writing... intervention into something that happened in the past that seems implausible and cuckoo. Um, so, for example, I was at a conference once and uh, I was at a panel about um, a fairly you know, heavy subject, uh, refugees trying to uh, escape as groups out of Central Europe um, after the rise of the Nazis. And I asked a question about... Um, a group that I look at who had a variety of reasons why it would have been difficult for each of them uh, to make it both make it out and to make it into another country. Hmm. Um, and I raised my hand and said, sort of, I'm trying to figure out how these things happen. Do you have any, uh, do you have any advice? And the panelist said very apologetically, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but I think it's very unlikely that any of those people would have, would have been able to escape. And I said, Right, so that's the thing they did actually, and I'm trying to figure out how they did it. And she was like, "Oh, right." So it seemed she was like, "Ah, you know, the information you're giving me tell, tells me I think it was probably a really lost cause for these folks." So that's really interesting to say. Okay, well, how then did they do this thing that seems like it shouldn't have been possible? That's right. different than saying like, "I'm going to throw these things in the story because they could potentially have happened, or maybe they did happen." But once you get too many of them, and you set up these characters, I mean. You set up the grandmother character, right, as this Ugh. woman who's so sort of so uh, can, can, um, committed to certain kinds of social norms, yeah. and then she's like, "Oh no, don't marry him!" In the church at the moment of like saying the vows, just did not see anyway. Yeah. So so let me let me get back to the real source of my hatred. So uh, <laughs> I actually think season one is pretty good. I do too. I think it's actually quite excellent. They're so mean to each other. They're really mean. The the grandmother, the dowager abbess or whatever. Dowager Countess. Countess. Yeah, whatever. Abbas is a nun. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) She's super mean all the time. So when she when she breaks from that meanness to show compassion, it has real meaning. Correct. And then like in later seasons, she just turns into like the cute old woman with a twinkle in her Mm -hmm. eye and Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, But let's just be clear, let me just say that like actually in my book, Maggie Smith can do anything she wants, and I'm not I'm just not gonna It's not Maggie Smith's fault. It is not it's it's the writing. Uh, I think the I think all is... the performances are very good. It's yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's a writing issue. Agree. Uh, uh, as you hinted at, I think the show gets super sadistic um, <laughs> and starts um, 
doing things to characters specifically because people like those characters. Mm-hmm. Well, and also because certain people wanted to leave the show. And well, I think so there you should can write have... someone off a show in a satisfying way, or you can kill them off in a bullshit, sadistic way. Right. Or you can say, we live in England where there actually is a lot less pressure to make television shows go indefinitely just because they're popular. And we could say, we sign these people on for a three year contract. Let's end after three years and have this be a really good short little gem of a show that doesn't totally lose itself. And I think that that was an option. Um, and that, you know, well, that makes sense. One I would have taken. That makes sense. Um, but uh, really, what it comes down to for me is is uh, is this sort of gauzy view of the past that you mm-hmm. were talking about, mm-hmm. which is what reminded me of this in the first place. In this sort of like it's just dripping in this romanticization and fetishization of uh, of this upper class society, um, and it's not just. You know, it sort of it sort of takes the stance of being about like the rich people and the servants and everything. But the the ideology of the show is clearly clearly pro aristocracy, um, and the servants find meaning in service to the aristocracy. You know, and it's all about how the decline of the aristocracy is causing all these problems for the the villagers and everything. Yeah, I mean, I think more, and even all more... the sympathy is is toward that. Really horrible social structure. I, I'm not sure that that's as true as what Very I think. True. What I think is part. So I think in the first season, it's it's much more critical of that of that. That's uh, probably true. Relationship, probably true. and I think uh, one of the problems with the show, I think, is a problem that all television can have, which is mm. uh, it's a sort of we're getting the band not back together, but we're getting the band together is the sort of narrative, right? We start with these disparate characters, and they may not like each other very much, and they may have conflicts, and they may do terrible things to each other, but as the show goes along, we see them kind of pulling together and becoming nicer to each other, right? There's a lot of shows like this that start, mm-hmm. you know, they say forming a family. The problem is that we're supposed to start in a moment where a lot of these people have worked and lived together already for many years, oh, and so they're, you know, these kind of petty cruelties that they do are not because they all are just getting to know one another, um, with the exception of a few people who are sort of new to the situation, sure, right? Daisy, who's who uh, Bates, or Daisy, who's new, or or um, or Matthew and right. his mother, right? They kind of come in and they're and they're the Stir surrogate for the for the audience as like seeing this world intact and mm-hmm. and entering into it, but uh, but uh, you know. These people have actually probably been slighting and hurting each other for 10, 20 years. There's yeah. no reason why in two seasons suddenly everyone's being nice to each other. There is a reason, however, and I think it's actually much more insidious than just uh, romanticizing the past. Ooh. It is the idea that the Great War transformed and leveled British society and brought people together in this kind of patriotic uh, and even sort of uh, small d or even tiny d democratic or democratizing way. And this is a narrative that is really, really important still in the UK. And I think it's still important in that understanding of that history. I think historians of Britain would say that, you know, we need to be really careful of this narrative, uh, that it may be not so true uh, mm-hmm. or not so good, right? So we, we have a devastating and, and in some ways fairly futile and pointless war uh, that, what, it remakes society so that makes it good? Uh, I think a lot of people oh, would I really see. protest okay. that idea that somehow because we suffered, right, because we suffered in this way, our society was transformed and... Uh, injustice. It, was, it was worth it in the end. Because it was worth it, it in the end because it established yeah. more equality and something like this. And I think that's a really dangerous narrative. Huh. Um, even though I like season two in a way because I think it softens some of the characters in ways that seem uh, really personally authentic, um, particularly Lady, the character of Lady, Lady Mary, I think is really interesting in that season. But I think that as a kind of metaphor for British society or British upper class womanhood or something, it's really a nasty narrative to buy into. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Um, hmm. 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 Yeah. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that Downton Abbey is a waste of time. Uh, I think oh, it's it actually, is. you know, fairly fun for the first couple of seasons, but I think that, um, if what you're really interested in is a critical look at that period of time, you're not going to get it. If you're not interested in that, then, you know, carry on with your bad self, except for that I, as an historian, I'm a little bit worried. I have some cautions, you know, around that. Makes sense. 
you know, it's like obnoxious. I don't know if you're a professional sommelier or something and you're just I'm, mad, I'm at, mad at people who just, you know, like get drunk on wine and don't really taste it or something, you know, and those people are insufferable and nobody likes them. So I'm prepared to be disliked, but. Yeah. Yeah. But I, th- I mean, I think, I think we've, we've sort of enumerated multiple, multiple <laughs> problems with Downton Abbey. Uh, I didn't think that's where we were going to go no, with this. No, I did not either. I didn't uh, even know you watched Downton Abbey. Like, this is surprising to me. Just, uh, you know, more more topical content from Tell Me Why I'm Wrong. <laughs> hot but I news mean, of the day. <laughs> right, hot news of the of the television show that's now been off the air for several years. I used to use some some moments from Downton Abbey in my teaching because students had seen it. And yeah. now I try to, like, say, like, oh, remember when? And people are like, what? They don't know it anymore. No. Yeah. Um, Sophie, I, mm-hmm. we're coming up on about, uh, 50 minutes of yeah, recording here. I feel like um, we, that means that we, we should stop. I think so too. We've, we've already said a lot of smart things. There's probably not enough room really for more smart. smart a lot of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll break the internet if we keep talking smart here. <laughs> so, Hey listeners, uh, we enjoyed this. Um, so we hope you did. You can check out our website at tmwiw.net. Uh, you can get our, uh, a link to our, the show's Twitter account there, which I forget what it is. Uh, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't tweet I don't tweet. It is. Cause I'm a rabbit, not a bird. It's TMWIW podcast. That's the username for the, for the website. Uh, sorry for the, uh, for the Twitter account. So you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at, um, Amos Worth. You cannot follow Sophie on Twitter because rabbits don't use the internet really it's because um, of our paws because of their paws they can't type good that's what she's <laughs> talking <laughs> um our plan is to do uh, a new episode about every two weeks and we've we've got a uh sort of six episode season planned out um with uh with this format of uh sort of uh, Provocation and response, exactly, and ranting. Uh, Although I think we didn't rant for. I mean, I, I want to say, did you I? You went off the, you went off the handle. Yeah, out of control. Yeah, uh, I'll probably rant next time. Yeah, Is I feel true? like I didn't. You know, the, yeah, oh yeah, I, yeah. I was really more reassuring than provocative. I think you were, which was. Uh, I'm going to be honest. It was a little disappointing. <laughs> I'll do better next time. Okay. Um, anything else we need to say before we close it up? Well, thanks for listening, and I hope that it's been interesting. Uh, if you've got, uh, can can we tell people that they should they should tell us if they think we're wrong? No, is there I a don't, way for I them to do I that? Don't we don't. Hear. We no, don't there want is it. actually there's there's a a contact form on the website, um, which you, you fill that out. You send us a message. We we just want to hear if you think we're right. Yeah, please yeah, let us know if we're right. Please, not that, if we're right. That we're t- right. That we're right. Thank you. Yeah. Tell Affirmations us, tell, only. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's what the internet is known for. Yeah. And uh, that's what this show is about. Uh-huh. <laughs> we tell each other why we're wrong, and, and we want we need you all to build us back up again. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well. Um, this has been I'm lovely. Gonna, it's been great. Yeah. Uh, talk to you again soon. You bet. Bye. Bye.